Glad you could be with us here tonight to dig deep into God's inspired word. Uh, if you could turn with us in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 9 tonight. And boy, uh, Sean, as we get into Revelation chapter 9 tonight, we are going to be getting into, uh, I guess, to lack, for lack of a better term, some deep territory. Uh, we may find ourselves uh, getting a up-close and personal tour of a place that the Bible calls the Abuso or the Abyss, and I'm not sure it gets much deeper or darker than that. You know, it was C.S. Lewis, uh, the great Christian writer, who uh, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. In The Screwtape Letters, uh, he basically presents a fictionalized dialogue between an experienced tempter uh, by the name of Screwtape and his protege, Wormwood. And uh, it is uh, one of C.S. Lewis's most famous books and most quoted books because uh, it really does uh, provide, in a sense, using that device, an opportunity to be able to see the kind of spiritual battle that we're in. C.S. Lewis said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So one of the things that we really have to have in place if we're going to be victorious in this spiritual battle that we are all engaged in is not to take our cues on the adversary based upon someone's experience or based upon a sensational book that we've read on the subject. It is so crucial that we understand the nature of our enemy by looking at Scripture and Scripture alone. And, and tonight, Sean, as we get into Revelation chapter 9, that's what we're going to be encountering. Yeah, spiritual warfare is oftentimes given a lot more hype than it's worth, and other times not enough hype that it's due. And when, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that old film, Gaslight. It was featuring a husband who was trying to essentially psychologically torture his bride into insanity so that he could lock her away and benefit from the fortune. And what was interesting is throughout the film, this term gaslighting would just be to constantly and repetitiously deny realities. Like, uh, hey, uh, could you turn on the light? Light's not on. The light light's off. I don't know what you're talking about. And she's just basically making her question everything to the point where she thought she was going insane when the real reality was she was being lied to. Right. And I think you would never find a better example of spiritual warfare than that because while the enemy's ultimate desire for us is destruction, that will happen naturally if they can accomplish one thing and one thing only, separation from God. And they do this not through outright destruction, but distraction. And that is the fundamental nature, and as what we'll see, the fundamental tactic of the enemy. But what's also interesting about this is that noting the nature of the demonic is rooted not in freaky features or anything of the like, it's in their ability to twist or distort the truth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, the context is regarding the coming of the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, the cruel king of the north, the Assyrian, take your pick. But the coming of the lawless one, this is 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, is according to the working of Satan. Okay, what's that? With all power, signs, and lying wonders with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So what's the alternative? For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, and that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, in a not right relationship with God. And if we're all going to be honest, we all still fit into that category. We wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. Our fallen I, nature is still drawn to these things, but those who pursue it need to understand they're not serving nothing. They're not even serving necessarily themselves. They're serving not God. 
And that's a problem because what actually ends up filling that vacuum ain't pretty. Now, God can deal with this in one of two ways. As we see in 2 Thessalonians, he could allow them to believe what they want and the direction that ultimately heads. Or, like a good parent, he can uh, maybe show them more than they bargained for. Allow them to see just why you're being warned about these things and that they don't have your best intentions in heart. Because note, if God has to use contrast, which in Jewish culture he is fond of doing, if he's going to make as sharp one as possible, that's the message. If he's going to allow you to see the enemy's power and the intentions he does with it, first of all, we need to understand where that power comes from, and we also need to understand why God would allow it in the first place. So in this study, what we're going to be discussing in what's called the first of the three woes, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we're going to discuss the nature of our enemy, why it would be foolish to consider our adversary, that's what demon means, by the way, our friend. The second is the nature of our ally, why is it wise to depend entirely not mostly, not, uh, I guess, as a last resort or circumstantially, entirely on Jesus when it comes to the demonic, and of course, the nature of our battle. What can we hope to contribute to a war that we can't see, nor frankly, should want to? Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, there was a book that was popular a few years back called The Beautiful Side of Evil, and I love the title of that book because, uh, let's face it, if Satan came to us looking like a refugee from an underwood deviled ham can and said, hey, follow me, it's going to be great. We go, no, 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 get away from me, devil. But uh, uh, 2 Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and uh, verse 13 says this, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. You know, right now we live in an era where, you know, Satan is a master of marketing. Uh, he is able to put on a great face and uh, an alluring appeal. Uh, there was a uh, great line from Hamlet by Shakespeare uh, after he saw the apparition of uh, his father who was uh, murdered and put away by his uh, mother and another schemer. He said this, uh, he said, the apparition I've seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Now, one of the ways that we really get suckered in is by seeing the outside of what evil is all about, and it's by its nature deceptive. But boy, in Revelation chapter 9, the cover of evil and the true nature of our adversary in spiritual warfare is really going to be revealed to us in, uh, boy, uh, HD uh, clarity, isn't it? I guess the term now is 4K, but yeah. we'll leave that for another time. Uh, just to recap, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, Revelation chapter 8 comes right before chapter 9. There you go. You learned something tonight. <laughs> and in Revelation chapter 8, we're being introduced to the seven trumpet judgments, following the seven seals that will make up leading into the halfway point of the tribulation. We're still not in the great tribulation, as it were, but we are seeing things get ugly, because for those of you who were with us last week, you know that at this point, these heavenly events, these announcing of trumpets given to seven angels, proceed with physical consequences on this earth. All green grass is burned up, as well as a third of the trees and the consequences therein. The world is it getting a lot colder. We saw references to Isaiah being fulfilled and the earth tottering to and fro like a drunken man. We note uh, details about a meteorite strike making the bare distinction between the land and the sea kind of a question at this point. And we also saw a spiritual phenomena that poisons a third of drinking water. Now, and all this is physical at this point. Yeah, the heavenly cause to an earthly event. And we'll emphasize that too, because that'll be relevant relevant in our interpretation of chapter 9 as well. But what's important to note about what we've seen thus far is that in these catastrophes, what God introduced out of his grace in Genesis 1 are now systemically but partially being removed in a subsequent order in order to essentially not only give us the inspiration for thankfulness, you never know what you have till it's gone, but also to double down on the point 
that what God has given, he can also take away. We're not entitled to his blessings. And as this world is being judged, the result of the removal of these things, it was scary enough with the first four. But then after the fourth trumpet judgment and the long winter they'll be experiencing, we read in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 13, and I looked and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In a word, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, you thought the physical was bad, get ready for the spiritual. Well, and not yeah. just that, the physical as well, because yeah. what's going to happen next ain't pretty either. Yeah. Uh, also to clarify, as we're going through this chapter, just certain things so that you understand the angle at which we're interpreting the passage, uh, we are coming at this text under the assumption that these are a series of events taking place in a particular order, that the seventh seal isn't a broad summary of Revelation 6 through 16, but a specific event that introduces right. another series of events. The woes didn't take place in Revelation 6 or 16, the seal or the bowl judgments. The trumpets are distinguished as the only cause is what's referred to as these woes. The second assumption we're making is that these trumpets are distinct from the bowls and seals due to the nature of the plagues being distinguished, not in necessarily theme, because you will see that, but in scope, Right. that this is limited to a degree. And what's also important about that is that the overall impact they'll have on the earth, while similar, the fifth seal judgment, the persecution of Christians worldwide, you see a darkening of the world in a moral sense. In the fifth trumpet judgment, we'll see a more literal darkening of the world in a spiritual and physical sense. And in oh, the yeah. fifth yeah. Uh, bowl judgment, when we get to chapter 16, we'll see uh, it's going to get about as dark as it could get. But um, noting that point as well, this is not only what's about to be described, but it's also different from what has and hasn't yet taken place. We do believe that the fifth seal judgment has taken place and that the fifth bowl judgment has not taken place. These aren't overlapping. Right. And then finally, that the remaining trumpets uh, will include specific periods of time. If you want to read ahead while I'm rambling, verses 5 and 10 note a five-month period that this trumpet judgment will influence. So we don't think that these are allegorical. These are specific events at specific times for a specific purpose and in a specific order. Yeah. So with all of that hopefully clear, let's get into chapter 9. In verse 1 we read, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall into heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Now, first thing that takes place as a result of the fifth trumpet judgment sounding is a spiritual event followed by a physical one. Now, how do we make the distinction? Well, in the fancy language known as hermeneutics, which is a complicated way Herman of saying who? something yeah, simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do I mean when I read that? What does this mean? That's all that we're saying. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. But there's also another caveat. If the plain sense doesn't make sense, seek another sense, lest you believe in nonsense. Right. We're going to be applying both. Now, the first event is that a star falls from heaven to the earth with a key to open the abyss or the bottomless pit. Now, is that literal? Not likely. And here's why. If a star, a literal star, a cosmic nuclear firewall... Like, like say, Alpha Centauri or something like that. Yeah. Crashed into the Earth, we'd have a lot more to worry about than smoke. <laughs> That's true. That would bring us into the realm of the ridiculous. So... Would this then be spiritual? And the answer is highly likely. Why? What well, we see star used regularly in the Bible, Re Revelation has a tendency to do, referencing the books that came before it. That's why they put it at the back. Re uh, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 9 referred to significant human beings as stars of heaven. If you remember Joseph's dream in regards to the vision of the 11 stars bowing down to him as well as the sun and moon representing his father. Also, for those of you taking notes, remember that for chapter 12. 
There's also references to the stars of heaven referring to angels in the book of Job chapter 38 and verse 7 when they were rejoicing at creation. Yeah, the morning stars sang together, we're yep. told there. Yep. And then we also see later in the book, Revelation 12 and verse 4 references the dragon drawing a third of the stars of heaven and casting them to the earth. This is then explained in the chapter in verse 9, five verses later, as the angels who joined him in his rebellion. So we see this consistent theme. Now, understand that when we're talking about the nature of this creature, we're not told if it's a good angel or if it's a fallen angel or what we call a demon. Now, you'd say, well, isn't he obeying God? He's unlocking the pit as a result of this judgment. Yeah, but you're going to find out in a minute that angels following orders doesn't necessarily mean they're good or bad because these things will be also obeying a limitation on them. That doesn't mean that they're righteous. But what's important to note about this passage is that what it's doing is a spiritual event, but that will have physical consequences, which is what? The second event smoke rises up out of the abyss and darkens the sun and the air. Now, is that literal? Highly likely. There's nothing preventing us from believing that a spiritual event could have physical repercussions on the earth. If you don't believe us, read the previous chapter. Right. But there's the other option, that this is spiritual. Now, that could be somewhat likely. There's people who have put forward theories as to noting this uh, general aura of spiritual darkness that will accompany the tribulation and so right. forth, but I think that's, frankly, a waste of time because the literal sense already makes <coughs> sense. Yeah. There's no need to do more homework than we have to, and all God's children said amen. So, going <laughs> on, and just as a side note, what is the abyss? Yeah, the, uh, the term literally means the abuso in, in Greek. Uh, it carries the idea of a bottomless pit, believe it or not. In fact, uh, it uh, has a decided spiritual nature to it all. You might recall back in the book of Luke, uh, if you were with us on Sunday morning, going through our study in Luke, when Jesus dealt with a man possessed by the legion of demons at Gadara, uh, when he was going to cast them out, they made a very interesting and desperate request of Jesus. They begged him not to send them into the abyss, the abuso, if you will, but to uh, send them into a herd of pigs that was feeding nearby. Well, that's getting trippy in and of itself, but uh, understand something. There is something about this place that we are introduced to, the abuso, the abyss, the bottomless pit, depending on your translation, that is so terrifying that even demons don't want to go there. And as we see who comes out of this bottomless pit, we'll probably get a pretty good idea of what was so intimidating about this destination. Yeah, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, he makes a reference to it in noting it as a holding place for adversarial spirits, that the demons that have not only rebelled against God, but that God knows need to be restrained until judgment, much like those who physically die apart from Christ are awaiting judgment, they're in the same holding state. And stop and think about that for a second. That means that because we know that there are demonic spirits that are free to wander about uh, and carry on Satan's will in this world, that means that there are a level of demonic fallen angels who've gone after Satan and turned to evil that are so dangerous, so damaging, that God has them in a holding pen until this time. This is pretty heavy-duty stuff we're dealing with here. Well, what kind of entities do we run into there? Well, we continue on in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 3. It says, Then out of the smoke locust came on the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is a callback to chapter 7. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now, regarding the 
environment that these things are already being introduced, it's important first to note the fear of the dark isn't a fear of the darkness in of itself. No one's afraid of being alone in the dark. They're afraid of finding out they're not alone in the dark. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and noting this is the global state, what makes the fear of darkness in of itself so damaging for people psychologically is the fear of the unknown, the fear of a lack of control, which are two things that we don't like. If there's something we don't know, we want to find out something about it. Even if it's false, we want to be comfortable through that knowledge. The same way is that lack of control, this uh, idea of knowing your surroundings is why people generally don't go out at night, because that gap in knowledge unsettles people. And noting that fear is rightly justified, we're titling this message, Why We're Afraid of the Dark, it's noting this very scary state we call vulnerability. And that's usually what ends up inspiring fear and what will dominate the earth for anyone who doesn't know the Lord for the next five months. Now, three terms are used to describe and understand the sheer horror of what is happening. First, the power of these things is compared to that of scorpions, who, if you've encountered one in the recent uh, history of your life, cause a great deal of pain, unfortunate enough to cross them. Normally, earthly scorpions are docile and territorial, but these aren't from the earth. We've hopefully clarified that, given they come out of the smoke and they weren't coming out of anything else before that. So they've been introduced as the result of opening the abyss. What's also important about this is that the relationship we have with them will be on the business end of their stinger. The second thing is that they were given power. They were commanded. They could not kill, only torment, which is an internal state of anguish rather than external. Interesting as well, they're limited not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. Which locusts normally do. Yeah, and this would tell us that we aren't dealing with the regular, typical locust that you would run into. Some would probably be inclined to say, well, kind of like the prophet Joel used the image of locusts as a, an image, a symbol of the judgment of God. These are locusts that will come upon the earth, and they're probably just those lovely little, well, no, uh, they do the opposite of what locusts tend to do. Yeah, they go after people, not plants. And what's also interesting as well, they could only do these things for a set period of time. These entities that are going to cover the earth at this time won't kill anyone, not because they don't have the capacity to do so. Or even the desire. The yeah. permission yeah. is what's key. The natural conclusion is that these adversarial or demonic creatures that will physically interact with the earth give us a framework to the limits that demonic creatures have in general. Just like Satan himself couldn't harm Job in Job chapter 1 and 2, beyond what God allowed, this judgment is being limited. They're being given over to the macabre hospitality, if you will, of the masters that they've been serving instead of God, and you find out just how nice these masters are. As you stated, and as well what's building on the point, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 19, Paul the Apostle makes a contrast between what the non-Christians are worshiping and what we worship in truth. In verse 19 we read, what am I saying then? That an idol, literally a nothing, yeah. is anything? Note the wordplay there. Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The hypothetical statement is no. Now, unfortunately, there are ministries out here who will take this passage basically backwards and say, oh, so the real pagan idol is actually a demon. Therefore, these pagan idols are demons. No, he's saying these idols, these nothings, aren't anything. When they refuse to worship God, they're worshiping something else, and that's to be avoided. So if we then take this point, and as it was stated before in 2 Thessalonians, when God gives you over to a lie, anything apart from the truth is fair game. And while the scope to which these demons can act on their desires towards you has been limited, the fact they have to be restrained from killing people 
You know, if you're babysitting some kid and the parent has to remind their daughter, now don't kill the babysitter. Why would you bring that up? <laughs> so the desire there in the first place, that's the point. The intention would be there if not addressed otherwise. So these aren't nice. But before we go on, anything more to say? Uh, well, just the, uh, the notion in uh, John 10, 10 of our adversary, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That'll be important later. It, it seems that these entities are happy to settle for two out of three. They, they can't kill, but they can steal, in a sense, people's health and well-being, and they can bring about great destruction. Which is what we read in verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So when these demonic entities do their thing, uh, when they have this physical ability to interact with people, sting these uh, people on earth with their, their tails and so forth. Sean's made a scale model of one, by the way. If you want to take a look at that. We'll later. go into more detail yeah. in a moment. But, but, uh, but when these individuals are struck by it, we are told that uh, they are uh, uh, given authority to torment men for five months. Now, why five months? Uh, there's a lot of speculation about that. Probably the, the most logical way to take that is that the average locust swarm in the Middle East, and by the way, it's still a devastating phenomenon they experience even today. Uh, the average locust swarm begins in late spring, and the locusts, just by their very nature, die out in late uh, summer. And it's roughly locust season, if you will, is about five months that goes on there. So in that sense, they are following a pattern. But I want to ask you an interesting question here, Sean. It says, and they were not given the authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. How many have ever been stung by a scorpion, by the way? It's not a, a pleasant experience by any stretch of the imagination. But notice it says... Uh, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. In other words, someone that is stung by the business end of one of these demonic entities is going to desire to die but not be able to. Now, this raises kind of a controversial question. So does that mean that if someone during that time uh, decapitated themselves. Their head would still be sitting there all of the walking dead, you know, going, wow, that didn't work. Um, if they, they jumped into a volcano uh, and, uh, you know, they'd just be this crispy critter, but they'd still be alive. Um, what does it mean that uh, death will flee from them? Well, like the individuals usually bring up these questions, you're making the assumption they'll have the energy or effort while suffering to pull off those kinds of feats. If you've read the Left Behind novels who take this passage literally as well, they illustrated it through the most people were able to accomplish were jumping off cliffs or firing a gun at themselves, but just somehow, supernaturally, they missed the uh, full capacity to kill themselves. But we also need to recognize the point if you haven't been paying attention, the world went from natural to supernatural three chapters ago. Right. So there's some new factors going on here. The rule book has been rewritten. Yeah. Uh, normally, locusts don't look like that. So let's first jot that down. But secondly, it's noting the full scope of this plague. Because just like the fifth seal judgment was regarding a spiritual darkness, the removal and the allowing of persecution of Christians on a global scale, just like the fifth bowl judgment will be as close to hell as this world could experience, what we're seeing in a sense is the same theme. Mankind is being given a taste of what existence apart from him is like. Hell doesn't stop. There is no relief. There is no out. There is no off switch to the torment of so hell. So this is like a five-month hell preview. For Limited people. to a point. Yeah. And it'll get worse in the bold judgments, and it'll get worse, worse in the real deal. But what God is doing is, as we stated at the start of the study, is that slight introduction saying, you sure you want to go down this road? Here's as little, little taste as I can expose you to. You want those Christians to go away? Okay, here's what the world looks like devoid of my truth and influence. 
You really want to keep worshiping these? Let me show you what you're actually worshiping. You really want to side with the kingdom of the Antichrist? I'm going to put that place in the same kind of darkness you'll be in if you continue down this road. Continuing on with that path, though, I think that's the whole point of this plague, along with the inability to see, the inability to die, and stuck in that state of torment, the internal state of anguish, is what makes this so scary. Because note, you can't see anything. You can hear things, and what you're hearing are the cries of those who either A, haven't been affected, B, who have been affected, and yourself, whichever category you fit into. You're alone for all intents and purposes. Anyone you run into is either worse off than you or about to be. This is desperate. This is horror movie material. And noting that everyone is going to be in that state, it's noting just how important it is to not only make sure that your relationship with God is intact, but what it means without it. We can go down rabbit trails of hypotheticals that aren't presently in reality that we can't test that the text doesn't address. You can be my guest if you want to deal with it. But when we're talking about this plague, that's the emphasis, is what we're being shown is as close to hell as a human psyche could analyze. And whether you say, so what, what's the significance of the lake of fire compared to outer darkness? Because doesn't fire produce light? Well, those two things have one thing in common. I want to go there. Yeah, basically, yes. Leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. But continuing on, uh, anything more to note? No. Verse ahead. 7. This is where uh, this thing comes in. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. On their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had in their tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And power, their power was to hurt men five months." And they had king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, or in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, notice that John uses the term like nine times in the span of five sentences. But he's not like a dude from like California. No, he's making this point because he doesn't know what he's looking at. Right. And that's going to be the same reaction as when people are looking all over the world at this point, coming out of the darkness, any interaction is, what in the name of the 13 spices and herbs of Kentucky Fried Chicken is that? That's the point. Yeah. So if John can't describe this, and much like his association with the cherubim, he does as good a job as he can saying that's kind of like a lion and an eagle and a person. Except it has eyes all over it. Yeah, and its (laughs) skin looks like hot coals, and it's very loud. What, six six wing, four, I don't know, it's weird. (laughs) The point being made, though, is when we're told about these specific details, they're not without significance. Now, lots of speculation can be made, so take this with a grain of salt to what it's due, but the reason why John first makes the association with locust is not only in reference to Joel chapter 2 and verse 25, but also in Exodus chapter 10, also in the context of judgment, locusts are describing what? The taking away of what brought life, whether it's in crops or peace. Take your pick. But it's associated in Scripture with this theme of removal, God sending something to take something else away. The war horses, or horses prepared for battle, I see this a few times in Scripture in various contexts, but the one closest I could associate with, as far as what would be appropriately applied to something demonic, would be in Psalm 20 and verse 7, Psalm 20 and verse 7, as well as Psalm 33 and verse 17, where both passages are making a poetic contrast between the strength of man compared to the strength of horses as inferior, but the strength of God as superior to horses. Now, we read in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 that mankind has been made, and this is in reference to the Psalms as well, a little lower than the angels. Now, if you were to encounter something on the battlefield, especially in the ancient day, and they got a horse, those things are stronger than you. Those things are bigger than you. And I think that is enough for the theme to be 
Yeah, it, it's an image of strength for yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, definitely stronger than us. Uh, the third feature was the crown of gold. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 and in Revelation 12 and verse 3, this book has essentially kept that theme of given authority, which we see also the extent of that, that they could harm men, but they couldn't kill men. Uh, if you're going to wonder, well, where else in the Bible is that? In terms of heavenly reward, I wouldn't consider the demonic comparable to that. So note my hermeneutic in that regard. The fourth feature was the faces like men. Now, bizarre CGI fantasies aside, what we're first told about men in Scripture in Genesis 1, 26 through 27 was they were bearers of the image of God, but what, for what purpose? To practice dominion over creation. Right. Now, for those of you who have read the book, you know that has been subverted to the enemy. These creatures are not only intelligent, but more intelligent, or at least as intelligent as human beings. And if you note the women's hair, they're at least smarter than men. <laughs> I'm joking. The women's hair feature, I think the only place I could find it described, and you have others as well, was in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 10, where it notes a comparison between women's hair and the glory of angels. Right. I think that all the significance of the women's hair is, being serious, is the detail these are spiritual beings right. in origin. Uh, the lion's teeth, we probably are familiar with that one. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, where it notes the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is noting ferocity or this desire and intent to catch prey. Right. It's noting the intention of these creatures. The breastplates of iron, uh, noting in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, is noting this feature of warfare as pointless to fight them physically. That if you try to hit these things, it's not going to work. Very strong. Yeah. yeah. Um, the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. Uh, obviously, this is an intimidation factor. If something's loud and large and coming right at you, that's obviously going to be very demanding of your attention. But the scriptural significance of this is actually in Judges chapter 1 and verse 19, where the faith of Israel, their focus on God failed. Why? Because their enemies were using chariots of iron. Now, does that mean that God isn't strong enough to beat chariots? No, but it did mean that if Israel wasn't looking at God and looking at the chariots, they weren't going to win. Right. And the nature of the adversary reflects this as well. The last, or the second to last feature, the scorpion stings, I think that's been explained enough. That's what's going to cause the pain. But their ruler, and you mentioned this verse prior, I'll say it again, Jesus making a contrast between the enemy and himself. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Their ruler, the one who sets the agenda for what these creatures do, where they go, and why, is a destroyer. Now, there's people who'd say, well, clearly that's Satan. Might be. Might just be another adversary, because at this point, Satan's in heaven, accusing us before the brethren. He hasn't been cast down to the earth. The Antichrist is on the earth and in power, but hasn't declared the abomination that causes desolation yet. This guy was of the bottomless pit. I think it's just the name of another fallen angel, yeah. one of the four spiritual yeah, that, entities that we know the names of. Now, note, people would say, well, why don't you just make it simple, Occam's razor it, and say it's Satan. Fine. But it doesn't really change the point that's being made. These things are following the agenda of someone who only wants to destroy. Not friendly. And that's what I think we can take away from this. And also, if you want further details, check out Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where we're seeing a definite foreshadowing of these things, going all the way far back, some believe. Joel's prophecy is the time of Solomon. Like, almost, you know, before Elijah level yeah. prophet. Yeah. But obviously this uh, effigy that I've sculpted and people listening on audio just pretend that it looks weird is obviously an attempt by John to compare it to earthly things. If anything else, this is going to, well, they're obviously not silver, but you're going to make a point in comparison and say, whatever they look like, I'm glad I'm not there. Yeah. Because in verse 12, we're told this, the one woe is past, so the five months are over as far as verse 12 is concerned. Behold, still two woes are coming after these things. Now, all I think I really have to contribute at this point is, could it get any worse? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But dovetailing off of the plain interpretation of this passage, the references that John has in mind, with the remainder of time that we have, it's about seven minutes, what can we take away from this practically apart from scary? Yeah. Well, the first practical thing I would say to you is, uh, especially in light of uh, how world events are transpiring, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would highly recommend you make that decision and make it quickly. Because what is going to be coming on the earth is not something that you're ever going to want to go through. You know, the, the practical application for someone who doesn't know the Lord quite simply is this. Uh, I have run into people who will look at Bible prophecy. They will see that Jesus fulfilled 103 Old Testament prophecies down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's in his first coming. If he was that accurate about the prophecies that were made in the first coming, you better believe the prophecies of the second coming are probably going to be fulfilled in a much more literal sense than any of us can probably understand. I have run into so many non-Christians who say, yeah, 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 I, I get all of that, and, and what you're saying is probably right, uh, but I've got some other things going on in my life right now, and I'll tell you what, uh, if I wake up in the morning and on CNN they're saying, uh, oh, wow, you know, uh, 24 million people vanished overnight here in the United States, and there's no trace of them. Well, if I know that rapture thing happens, then... I'll get right with God. I've heard people make that argument. And, you know, when I see how the Bible describes what that final seven years is going to be like, my two cents to you is that is a huge gamble to be able to take. Number one, because the vast majority of people that go into this tribulation period uh, are going to end up paying for their faith in Christ with their lives. And if you can't live for Jesus now in this age of grace, where maybe the worst you're going to experience, at least uh, on this uh, culture we live in now, is someone not inviting you to a party or someone calling you a Jesus freak or, you know, not getting a, a promotion or everybody mocking you or, or things. You know, it's a lot of it is just sort of emotional and relational stuff. If you can't live for him now, right, when the level of suffering and persecution is pretty low. What makes you think you're going to die for him then? You know, it's definitely time to make up your mind. And if you're watching online, you're here, you haven't made that decision to receive Jesus as your Savior, he died to save you from all of this. And worse, believe it or not. As we said, this is just a warm-up for what eternity is going to be like if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ. The other thing that's mind-blowing when I see this thing described and the idea that, you know, people are going to, uh, uh, you know, seek death because they're in such pain from these stings and not be able to die. Many of you have probably experienced really intense pain. Um, wasn't too long ago, I experienced the joy of having a kidney stone. Now, that doesn't sound real bad unless you've had one. You know, uh, the, 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 uh, you know, when people say, uh, this too shall pass, like it's a comforting thing, they've never had a kidney stone. Because until that sucker passes, it's really intense. When we went to the ER, uh, you know, and they, they finally gave me the MRI and figured out I had a kidney stone, uh, the, the nurse says, oh, we're going to give you some, some drugs for this as quickly as we can. She said, I've given, done childbirth and I've had a kidney stone. The kidney stone's worse. And I looked at her and I said, that does not help me in the slightest right now. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the little chart they give you with the faces on it where you, they tell you to describe the level of pain that you have. You know, we got the smiley face on one side and the real frowny face with the tears on the other. I go, no, 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 out here somewhere. Could you imagine enduring that for five months? You're not going to sleep. You won't be able to eat. You know, I mean, it is just this uh, over the top. And all this is, is God's way of saying, bridge out up ahead. This is your destination if you keep going this direction. So you definitely don't want to be going through this tribulation period. If you're a non-believer, please you know, I, I just exhort you as strongly as I possibly can, especially in light of the imminent return of Jesus. 
it's time to get right or you're going to get left. And if you get left, you're not going to enjoy it. Uh, and that's understatement to the nth degree. The other thing that I would say is this. There's some real insight here into spiritual warfare. Now, these entities, these demonic entities, are going to have their way with a good population of the earth. But there is a percentage of the population of the earth that they won't be able to touch. You know, you, you referenced this back in uh, Revelation chapter 7. And uh, we are told that even during this tribulation period, it says, after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. In other words, even in this tribulation period, there are going to be people who come to know the Lord. These individuals are described there. are 144,000 from the people of Israel who are sealed by God. They are given, you know, we see the mark of the beast, you know, the number on the forehead and so on. Revelation 14 indicates that they are sealed, uh, written with the name of God on their foreheads and so forth. It's not going to be a visible thing. It's an invisible thing, but it's a very powerful and spiritual thing the sealing protection of God. Now, I know whenever we go into detail about what the reality of the demonic world is all about, people walk out of a study like this, go, man, I'm outgunned, I'm outarmed, these awful things, man, I'm going to be waking up at four in the morning, and I'm going to go, who was that in the corner over there? You know, if, if you are in the mood to do practical jokes, this is a great time to do that sort of thing. You can get a copy of this and hold it over a friend's head and say, wake up, wake up! But the bottom line is, we as believers need to understand something. You know, it was like Elisha said to his servant when he was surrounded by the enemies of the Syrians who'd come to hunt him down. He said, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. He said, open, their eye, open his eyes so that he can see. And the servant's eyes were open. He saw chariots of fire and the, the armies of God all around them. No wonder Elisha wasn't worried in the slightest about what was going on. Well, we need to have our eyes open about the resource that God gives to us, even as believers in Christ. Did you know that even we as pre-tribulation believers are sealed by God spiritually? Uh, you know, there's a beautiful passage that describes this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. What that means is, uh, back in the day, if you owned something, you could seal it. You would put a piece of wax on this property, and then you would stamp your signet ring into this wax, and it would have your family's mark upon it, your mark of ownership. Well, the moment you gave your life to Christ, you were sealed by the Lord. You belong to Him. And I think it's so important, the point that you made about the limitation of these critters. You know, although they're vicious, although they were powerful, although uh, they, they were seemingly unstoppable, very intimidating, very fear-generating. They could not touch those who belong to God. And, you know, one of the big mistakes that I see made in a lot of teaching about spiritual warfare is that it tends to almost be, we talked a little bit about this on our Reason for Hope broadcast today, kind of a dualistic picture of God and Satan. The God and Satan are kind of on equal footing, and, you know, it's like Satan's going to get over on God, and boy, if God's people don't pray and fast and do all these things they tell you at the deliverance ministry, you're going to be out of luck, because God would love to help you, but Satan's just too strong. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, you are of God, little children, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, and you have overcome them, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, in, in a kind of a sort of a, a backwards-y kind of way, 
I look at these creatures described in Revelation 9, and I see the other ones that are going to be, the four vicious creatures that are going to be released from the river Euphrates and, and so on, the Antichrist himself and what he's going to be able to do. And that's pretty intimidating stuff. But in a backwards kind of way, it should be the most encouraging thing you ever hear. Because as strong as these entities might seem to be, they can't hold a candle to your God, to the Jesus who dwells in your heart through the Holy Spirit. A literal legion of these kind of critters possessing a man in the area of Gadara looked at Jesus and they trembled in fear and they said, what have we to do with you, Jesus? Have you come to torment us before the time? So you're going to... So to finish up, when it comes to spiritual warfare, the only answer to the demonic is through proximity to our Lord. James made the point, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's how you do that. Yeah. Joining verses. Understand anything less is foolishness. Anything more is non-existent. Yeah. Would you like to pray? Yeah, let's do that. Lord, thank you so much that... In a spiritual battle, uh, Lord, it really is drawing close to you. And Lord, we uh, don't want to be ignorant of the wicked one and his schemes. We see just how ugly and how destructive evil is. And if uh, we are being seduced in some area of our lives to get involved with the things uh, of darkness or go back to our old ways when, when we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, works in the hearts of the sons of disobedience. I pray, Father, that you would open us up, our eyes up, to be able to see sin for what it really is. Not a character defect, uh, not a, an alternative lifestyle, but something that is designed to bring wreck and ruin and destruction to our lives. Lord, help us to be wise enough to say no to even these things of the world and these things of darkness that seem so seductive by saying yes to something better. And that something better is a living relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus died and bore the full wrath of God so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to you. And thank you, Lord, that we don't fight for victory in the Christian life. We fight from victory. God, I pray we would be even more diligent in these crazy days we live in to put on the full armor of God, that we know that you will allow us to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Thank you, Lord, for being our shield, our fortress, our rock, our God, our deliverer, in whom we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.